Well, good evening, everybody. Got the blackboard with me tonight. Woo! Almost got run over by it while we were praying. So it's kind of scary there for a moment. Um, my name is Mike, if we haven't met yet. I'm the pastor here at Kairos. And it's a privilege to be with you tonight. You know, I think sometimes when I think about Kairos and when I talk about Kairos, people try to define it. They're like, what is it? You know, and so I say, well, it's a worship gathering on Tuesday nights. And I try to talk a little bit about like what, it, what we experience here. But as we were leading um, each other in worship tonight, because it wasn't just the band, it was like the collective group, just all kind of singing together. I just was reminded that one of the things that's so powerful about Kairos is that every once in a while we get to see heaven come very close. And it happens almost every week where there's just a moment where it's like, man, there's something more than just the songs that we're singing. Like, it feels like God has drawn close to us. And those are the moments I long for the most at Kairos, where we feel God move powerfully. And that's my desire for us tonight as we study the word, that he would come close to us. So let me just pray for us as we begin our study of the scriptures. Jesus, thank you for this moment in time where we can worship you where we can declare your goodness and your, your kindness and your favor. And God, as we study the scriptures, I pray that you would just speak powerfully through them, that you would move within us, that you would just expose darkness and unbelief, that you would draw us to new, better, and richer inner life, where we would trust you with the, with the deep, fears that we have and the insecurities that we hold on to. God, I pray that you would just give us breakthrough in those things tonight to trust you with all of our life. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, if you guys have a copy of the scriptures, why don't you turn with me to Mark chapter 15. And as you guys are uh, turning there, <clears throat> I'm going to tell you about a time I lost control. Now, I didn't mean to lose control. I was driving on the interstate on I-65 coming south towards Brentwood. And uh, I didn't lose control like I lost my temper, although that's happened before. Like there are sometimes people just make you question your faith and humanity and God by the way that they drive. And that happens every once in a while. That wasn't one of those moments. No, I was in the car with my wife and our, our uh, young daughter, our oldest, who's 11 now, she was about two or three years old, buckled in a car seat. We're just cruising down I-65 doing about 80 miles an hour. I mean, 65 miles an hour. <clears throat> and as we got to the big turn, uh, you know, like the one where it starts to turn a couple different times, almost like a, like a, like a switchback right before you get to the exit where you go either towards Brentwood or towards Target. And uh, that, that turn, I, as we were coming down the road, all of a sudden I heard a pop and I started going straight up Mario Kart, like sideways, like this, this number. And I, I'd never really done that before. I, I've never like, like driven like a, a race car driver on an interstate. But let me just tell you, it was exhilarating and terrifying at the same time. And I had my whole life flash before my eyes. I was like, I don't know if we're going to make it out of this. And if you ever get a chance to drive past there, again, just know this is the public service announcement because... There are many wrecks that happen in that particular stretch. Honestly, if you guys go there, you'll, you'll see skid marks 
like over and over again on the road and on the, the little guardrail and you find like pieces of vehicles like on the side of the road there because this happens apparently regularly and it was happening to us. We started going sideways. I did my best Grand Theft Auto impression. I started going the other way, started spinning my wheel this way, started spinning it this way. And all of a sudden we righted ourselves and I found ourselves on the side of the road all in one piece, all alive. And I'm telling you, like I got out of the car to inspect if there was something bad. I walked around, everything was fine. I did a little like, yes, got back in my car and drove off. And it was a great reminder how much I hate not being in control. I'm a recovering control freak. I love being in control. I love knowing what's next. I love having a plan. I love having God like stamp that plan with his seal of approval. I love being in control. And when I'm not in control, I start freaking out just a little bit. Am I the only one that struggles with this? Any other control freaks in the room? Well, there's like three of us. Good, good. Or at least we're the honest ones. I think every single person in this room loves to have some measure of control. And then we get to seeing what the fundamental uh, claim of Christianity really is, which is you have to give up control to Jesus. And we begin to struggle with that. In fact, we begin to struggle with it because we're not sure if Jesus will really answer our prayers, if he's going to really have our back, or if it's going to turn out the way that we want it to. And even when it comes to the crucifixion, which we're going to be studying tonight, sometimes we go, okay, Jesus, this didn't turn out that great for you. Like, I mean, salvation and resurrection, but there was a lot of pain in the journey. And I'm not sure I'm going to sign up for that. But tonight, as we look at the cross, I want us to take a fresh look at it and perhaps see it in a brand new light so we can have confidence in our King. So tonight in, in, Mark chapter 15, we're going to pick up the story of Jesus' last day of life in verse 22. So Mark 15, verse 22, it says this. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. The reason he doesn't take it is because this was a, um, a, a, a concoction that would make him not feel the pain of the crucifixion, but he rejects it. Verse 24 says, Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him was the king of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on the right and one on the left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, ha, the one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him among themselves, saying he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. And even those who were crucified with him taunted him. Now, what I want you to see here is that uh, when we look at Jesus on the cross, sometimes we see what? We see someone who is a victim. We see someone who's a victim. He's crucified. And you see certain things happening to Jesus on the cross. The first thing is crucifixion, right? 
Let's see, my, my, my handwriting is kind of spotty, but uh, we'll, we'll write this here. Crucifixion. Don't grade me on my uh, spelling here. So we find crucifixion. The second thing we find that he is robbed. And the third thing we see is that he is taunted. Wow, that is very squeaky. I knew this was dicey when I started out. All right, so he's crucified, he's robbed, and he is taunted. These three things happen to Jesus. And crucifixion was a very violent and terrible way to die. Um, I just want to spend a little bit of time unpacking all three of these. So like the first thing, crucifixion, when you were crucified, it was a death sentence you didn't come back from. So the Romans were the ones who perfected this, and it was around a little bit before their time, but crucifixion was the process of, of having someone die by suffocation. And what they would do is they would pierce a person's hands and their feet and hang them up on a crossbeam. And the way that you survived this for a time was that you would pull yourself up so that you could take a breath of air. But as you continued to hang there, your lungs would fill with fluid and you would, dry, uh, you would drown on dry land. It was incredibly painful. It was humiliating because they would do these in, this, this kind of torture and death in public places where people would pass by you and see your humiliation. And that happened to Jesus. Secondly, you find that he is robbed. The soldiers take his clothing. It's the only possessions that Jesus has. Jesus had no property. He didn't have a lot of things. The only things he left behind really were his clothes. And those are stolen from him by the soldiers who crucify him. And they cast lots, which means they gamble to see who gets his stuff. And he has his very... Last possessions taken from him. And then finally he is taunted. As he's hanging on the cross, people walk by and begin to throw his teachings at him, but not as like a way to encourage him. They're looking to taunt him. And they say, listen, he saved others. Can he not save himself? He said he was going to tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. He is hanging from a cross. He cannot save anybody, much less rebuild the temple. What are we going to do with this person? Obviously he's a fraud. And we can look at Jesus and see him as a victim. In fact, when I was a kid, I kind of saw Jesus as a victim. When I would watch the Jesus film, which is one of the ways that I first was exposed to Jesus, my dad was a missionary and he would go from village to village showing the Jesus film and then extending a gospel invitation. And I was one of the people that watched it and I saw it as a kid and I was so moved by it, I began to weep because I felt sorry for Jesus. I saw him as a victim a victim of my sin and of the cruelty of the world. So I had empathy towards Jesus. And sometimes we can put Jesus in that category. And we see this actually reinforced sometimes by the way we talk about it because Jesus then says this. If you guys want to look with me in the text, in verse uh, 33, it says, when it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachnathi, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? So Jesus cries out to God. And we actually have his words preserved here. And it's important for us. We're going to get to that in just a minute. But this reinforces this idea that, God, that Jesus is suffering. And he is. 
He's suffering the penalty for sin and he is in pain and he's feeling the weight of that suffering in extreme ways because he's carrying the weight of sin upon him. He took our place, became our substitute so that we could have God's favor. On the cross, Jesus became the ultimate payment for sin by taking on God's wrath that we deserved so that we could have life with him. It's the beautiful exchange of the gospel. But we find Jesus saying something here that's really significant. He says, Eloi, Eloi, which we translate as my God, my God. And this isn't just simply him crying out in pain and suffering. We find him doing here is he gives us a key to unlocking everything that's happening in the crucifixion. You see, in Jesus' day, when they had um, <clears throat> scripture memory time or somebody was trying to like memorize part of the scriptures, they didn't refer to it by our handy dandy like, like verse and chapter like system that we have right now where we're like, okay, Psalm 5 verse 3 or Mark 15 verse 34. They would not do that because they had not invented that yet as a tool to understand the scriptures or to reference it or memorize it, okay? So what they would do is they would actually memorize it by the first words that were uh, a part of a passage of scripture. We find this actually um, preserved in other parts of our, of our Bible, um, like the book Genesis. So Genesis, we all know, is the very first book of the Bible, but it's also the very first words in the book of Genesis. The word Genesis means in the beginning, if you go to Genesis 1, what do you find? You find the very first words of Genesis 1 saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Same thing's happening here, where Jesus is Eloi, Eloi. And what he's doing is he's pointing people, not to his condition, but he's pointing them to scripture. And if you do a little bit of the work, in fact, if you look in your Bible, you find a cross-reference. Some of you guys can see that right now. But in your cross-references, you'll find that he's pointing specifically to Psalm 22. Psalm 22 was written a thousand years before Jesus walked the earth. It was composed by King David. And if you look in Psalm 22, you find this phrase starting Psalm 22, who says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's filled with allusions to the crucifixion. So I want us just to look at a few. In fact, you could like see hundreds of these in this passage if you take the time. But uh, what you find is direct parallels to these three ideas. So crucifixion. If you guys want to look with me at verse 18. I'm sorry, verse 16. All right. Verse 16. What do you see? It says, for dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. What does that sound like? Crucifixion. Which, by the way, had not been invented yet in David's time. Secondly, verse 18. Jesus was robbed. Verse 18 says this. It says, they divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. Do you see it? A thousand years before Jesus walked the earth, direct prophecy of what would happen at his crucifixion. Third, he was taunted. Look with me in verse 7 and 8. It says, everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. 
He relies on God. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. It's almost verbatim what they say as they pass by. Now, of course, Jesus was not like, like reenacting this. It wasn't like, hey, could we pay some people to come by? Like, you know, like, like take, you know, gamble for my clothing. Could we have some people say these words as they go by? No, what you find happening here is that God has a sovereign plan and he will accomplish it regardless of the circumstances. So instead of a victim, what we find is we find a victorious king. That's what Jesus is accomplishing on the cross. He's conquering sin and death. In fact, Psalm 22 ends with this, this, this statement. It says, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before you for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules the nations. What people saw was a misperception. What they saw was they saw a man dying. A man robbed and taunted, a man who had no options. But what was happening was a victory. And Jesus declares this on the cross in his last dying breath. In verse 37, jump back with me to Mark chapter 15. It says, Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. And then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What people saw was a victim that was a misperception. In the place of a victim was a victorious king. And we find Jesus accomplishing what he set out to do, which was to make a way for us to have direct access to God. What the scriptures capture is that Jesus, in the moment of his last dying breath, he breathes out a victory cry and splits apart the barrier between man and God so that we could have oneness and connection with the Father. He makes it possible for us to have a way to have intimacy with God where God could come to us and make it possible for us to have a true victorious life in him. Now, I want to just take the last moments that we have together to, to focus on the response of the people. There were some who taunted Jesus and walked past him and did not see what was happening. But there were some who did see. The scriptures record two groups of people who actually do see and respond appropriately. Verse 39 says, when the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last he said truly this man was the son of god so there's a man who crucifies jesus and instead of being someone who's hard-hearted towards jesus and instead begins to worship the oppressor of israel turns to being a believer in the messiah because he gave up control next you find some women Verse 40, it says, there are also women watching from a distance, and among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. We find Mark recording that there are some women who came, and they were watching Jesus. And this, this would have cost them because it was very dangerous to be associated with Jesus. But they were so convinced that Jesus Christ was not just a victim, but he was a victorious king, that they came and watched him, they beheld him, and followed him. And I believe that one of the reasons why Jesus revealed himself first to these women rather than the disciples was their choice 
to trust Jesus and, and believe, to hope against hope, to, to trust that he had a way. Now that same decision comes to you. Look, I don't know where you are in your walk with Jesus. I don't know if you're following him, but I think many of us like live lives as victims and we don't follow a victorious king. You see, many of us see ourselves simply as people who consistently come against difficulties and our faith begins to fail us. We begin to become afraid. We begin not to trust Jesus. In many ways, we become people who doubt his goodness and his faithfulness. Why? Because the circumstances do not look favorable for us. And I'm telling you, like, I'm right there in the middle with you. Like, Jesus can do an incredible thing, can answer a prayer, and the next minute, I can be like, I don't know if you even exist. So I shared with you guys uh, last week that God is calling us to Spartanburg, South Carolina, and the Lord has made it very clear that our family is to go. And it is heartbreaking for us because we love Kairos and we love this ministry and it's become a family to us and it's been difficult to leave. And the only reason we're going is because God's made it very clear that we're to go, okay? So I wanna tell you one story that ties into this whole thing. So when we were going to Spartanburg, we needed a house to live in. And uh, we needed to sell our house. And so we put our house on the market and it sold within 24 hours. Bang. We we're like, yes, Jesus. And then we went to Spartanburg and there were no houses available. So we started driving around through neighborhoods and we were driving through a particular neighborhood that everybody told us is a great one to have a family in. And so we were driving through and I told Tabitha, I said, you know what? All these houses are great. None of them are for sale. Let's just go get that house. And I pointed this one house. It was white. And it was painted. Because I know my wife likes the color white on buildings. And I was like, let's get that one. But it wasn't for sale. So uh, we drove on and laughed. And I was half serious. I was like, let's go knock on their door and see if they actually let us buy it right now. But we didn't. We got in the car. We went back to Nashville. Two days later, we got a message from a friend saying, hey, there's a house that opened up in that neighborhood and it's for sale. You guys should check it out. And we opened it up and looked at it and said, Tabitha, that's the exact same house that I pointed out in a neighborhood full of houses, like six, some, 700 houses in that neighborhood. The house that I was like, that's the one God gave us, that house. So I said, you know, I should start doing that with other stuff. I should just like start pointing out like <laughs> that car, you know. Uh, God's answering prayers like that. Let's make this happen. And so everything's kind of moving along really easily until this weekend. The people who were buying our house in Nashville backed out. Like, we're not going to buy the house anymore. And I'm telling you, when I heard that, I was like, God, are you even in this? What are you doing? We're you making this all up. The one house you pointed out, maybe it was just a coincidence. I'm betting. There are other people in this room who've walked that same path. Man, God did something incredible. Something you're like, that can't be just a coincidence. And yet when things get hard, what do you do? What do I do? I go, well, God, maybe we just made this whole thing up. But following Jesus means giving up control. 
and trusting him even when things seem to be going incredibly bad because God will ultimately work things out for good. You may not even see all the ways that God was doing something good as you're going through the difficult things. It may not even be till heaven. You may go through the darkest moments of your life. You may go through cancer. You may go through heartbreak. You may go through failure. But God is ultimately doing all things for your good. And when you follow the victorious king and you give up control, he'll take you places you never thought you'd ever go. So Kairos, my, my, my invitation to you, no, my, my plea is that you would be men and women who tell Jesus yes, that you choose to trust him. Why? Because he's ultimately seeking your ultimate good. He will walk with you. And so my question for you tonight, when it comes to our time of invitation, is simply this, will you trust Jesus? Will you trust him when it seems like you don't know where he's leading you? Will you trust him when it seems like things are going terribly wrong? Will you trust him because he ultimately is sovereign over all things? And if you trust him, he will walk with you. If he can do it at the cross, he can do it anywhere. But it begins by simply saying, Jesus, I will, I will open up my life and I will follow you even to the cross because I know that there's a resurrection waiting for me. So let me pray for us, Jesus. God, our, our cry, our heart cry as a community is simply to say, Jesus, we will say yes. We will follow you. And God, in my prayer for, for those who are feeling lonely and unseen and broken and hurt, that they would experience your goodness and kindness tonight. God, will you be a restorer of broken dreams and broken hearts? God, would you be a restorer of lost years and lost relationships. God, would you be a provider of good things, renovation and restoration in our hearts and lives? And all of this comes simply by asking this question, will I trust Jesus? God, I just say this for my life. My answer is yes because you are the Son of God.